Well, uh, let's pray and we're going to dive into the Word of God. Holy Spirit, help the people that listen, but help the preacher most of all. Amen. 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 All right. Love a short prayer. I hope you're doing well and it's just great to sense God's presence with us right throughout our morning from 9.30, 10.30, 11.30. Hopefully those of you that are joining us online are also just feeling God's presence really near to you right now. And uh, you know, you don't have to scratch too far below the surface in the time in which we live to know that we're in a time of, of great turbulence. A time of great pressure, and uh, as many of you will have read this last week, it's the two-year anniversary of the Russia-Ukraine war, kind of like the sobering kind of reminder of this kind of ongoing conflict, and in some ways that kind of represents so much of what's going on in life right now. I don't know if you've noticed, but I think anxiety is at an all-time high, right across many different civilizations and cultures. You know, for the first time in my lifetime, we're starting to have conversations about national service again. Uh, people are starting to retest their nuclear weapons again. There's this kind of overwhelming sense of just anxiety and uncertainty. Where are things heading in the world? We're living in a time of shaking. And I was reading recently a man called Samuel P. Huntington who called these moments moments of moral convulsion. Moral convulsion. And uh, he was writing in the 1980s and he said every 60 or 70 years... In culture and society, you, you get these moments of moral convulsion where people start to feel disgusted at the way things are and they start to provoke change around them. And so he was writing retrospectively about the 1960s. He said the 1960s was a time of massive change across much of Western culture. Um, obviously, it was this no, now known as the sexual revolution. It was a moment of social protests, of social reform, of the civil rights movement, of campaigning for women's rights and culture. It was a time where people started to ask big questions like, when does life begin? It was a time of kind of turbulence and change in the nation. People stopped wearing suits and started to wear flares and flower power. They perhaps stopped listening to Beethoven and started to listen to the Rolling Stones. It was a time of both kind of cultural change but also moral change. And Huntington said every 60 to 70 years, societies go through this cycle where we start to say, I don't like the way things are around here, we want change. And of course, what happens in the church is that as these moments are happening in culture, the church also often changes in these seasons. So in our nation, for example, here in the 1960s, you had at the same time as this sexual revolution, the house church movement, which was basically people who had been part of formal, kind of fairly religious churches, meeting in steeples and tall buildings and the city centers, who suddenly started to pick up the New Testament and read it again and say, where's the power? Where's the Holy Spirit? Where's the room for his presence? Where can we share spiritual gifts? Where can we get on God's mission together? We need to get out of these religious buildings and bring the power where the people are. And so what happened in the 60s and the 70s is you had these new movements start to emerge, like the house church movement and the restoration movement. Where I came from, Brighton, one of the, the leaders there, he tells the story in those early days that the church began to literally meet in his house every single week. That was church for them. And he said so many people started to come that he had to knock a wall out of his house so that he could accommodate more people. 
house church. It was growing because people were hungry to be together for genuine community, not just religious formalism, but genuine life together. And he said in those days, people were so hungry for God's word that they used to bring their cassette recorders. Anyone remember that? Anyone still have a cassette recorder? Melchizedek, well done. And they used to want to plug in their cassette recorders so they could kind of record the preaching and the new worship songs. And so Nigel said he had to put power sockets all the way around his house. He had to get an electrician in so that people could plug their cassette recorders in because God's power was breaking out. And so the church often begins to change in these moments. And what Huntington said in the 1980s, writing in 1981, he said the next big moral convulsion will happen in the second or third decade of the 2000s you'll again hit this 60 to 70 year cycle where in culture people begin to demand change. And that's exactly what's happening all around us. Not just on a political stage, but also the conversations we're now having in Western society. Identity politics, sexual politics. What is a man and what is a woman is suddenly being talked about in our culture. This is the conversation that's happening around our dinner tables with our children, personal pronouns, all this kind of stuff. This was not a conversation that was being had 60 or 70 years ago. But suddenly people are saying, we want to renegotiate the moral boundaries of how we live. You've obviously got massive issues like the environmental crisis about, you know, what does artificial intelligence mean for all of our jobs and our livelihoods and our future of mankind? I mean, this is big stuff, isn't it? The world is changing around us and I would suggest to you that God's purpose is that the church also changes in this season. That something is going to happen in the church. One writer writing about the next generation, he says this in the Wall Street Journal, Gerard Baker says, the proportion of those saying people can be trusted has dropped from about half to less than a third in the past 50 years. That's a massive change. That's happening today in our culture with people that you know. Maybe it's happening to you. David Brooks says, in the age of disappointment, people are less likely to be surrounded by faithful networks of people that they can trust. Levels of trust in this country, in our institutions, our politics, and in one another are in precipitous decline. And when social trust collapses, nations begin to fail. Can we get it back before it's too late? That's the bad news. Here's the good news. As God's people, in these kind of moments, we can take a step back and say, we have a sovereign God who has a plan. And he is working out that plan across the earth. He is not an impotent God, he's a sovereign king. And he's seated on the throne of the universe. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. That means that he has a plan. Ephesians 1 puts it this way, it says, he's working out all things in conformity with the purpose of his will. Isn't that wild? Think about your individual life and then think about all that's happening on a massive scale. God is working out all things in conformity with the purpose of his will. So as God's people, we can step back from what's happening around us and say, Father, you have a plan. You know what you're doing. I love how the message puts it. It says it's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we're living for. Long before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, he had his eye on us. He had designs on us for glorious living, part of the overall purpose he's working out in everything and everyone. You understand this is not God's first rodeo. Okay, it's not the first time he's seen massive social change. God saw the Egyptian empire come and then go. 
The Greek Empire come and then go. The Roman Empire come and then go. He's seen it all. This is not his first, this is not his first rodeo. He knows what he's doing. He's not anxious. Some of you are looking a little bit anxious, but he's not anxious. He's not worried about the future. He has a plan and he's working it out. And, you know, have you ever thought about the cross, how Satan viewed the cross as it was happening? I wonder if Satan viewed the cross as his greatest moment of triumph and victory and yet a moment of apparent crisis was actually a moment of amazing kingdom opportunity. So you can look at your crisis with two different perspectives. You can look at it as either this is an impossibility and woe is me or you can look at it as a crisis is a kingdom opportunity. There's an opportunity here for God to do something great because Jesus knew what Satan didn't. The crisis is going to lead to a resurrection and the salvation of mankind. So the greatest crisis was the greatest moment of kingdom opportunity. And so as God's people, we step back and say, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? Yes, there's lots of problems. Yes, there's lots of challenges. But Father, what are you about? What's your purpose? How are you working all things out in our time for your purposes and your will? And of course, there are many moments in Scripture where God's people find themselves in these moments of moral convulsion and change. And we could have picked loads this morning. We could pick Moses, we could pick Gideon, we could pick Joshua. But we're going to pick John the Baptist and Jesus. And we're going to read in Mark chapter 1. And this really was a moment of crisis for the nation of Israel at the time. The nation of Israel was an occupied nation. They were living as part of the Roman Empire Uh, They were in a a spiritually divided nation, split between three different religious groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. They were all at odds with one another, so there's spiritual division in the nation. And it had been 400 years since Israel had really heard from God prophetically. Malachi sees out the Old Testament, and then there's 400 years of silence. So this is the context into which John the Baptist and Jesus suddenly appear. So here's what we read. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make paths for him, straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. Notice he didn't appear in abundance, he appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the river Jordan. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt round his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey before I'm a celebrity had been on TV. And this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So what does God do in moments of moral convulsion? Times like we're living in today. Number one, he begins to awaken the prophets. This is what God always does. In times of turbulence and challenge and uncertainty and anxiety, he starts to raise up the prophets. And John the Baptist is that. And I just love that description in verse 4. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. He just appeared in the wilderness. Suddenly there he was, a voice in the wilderness preparing the way for Jesus. 
God raises up a prophetic voice and he sends them to start to unveil the future purposes of God. Because this is how God brings change. He announces it before it arrives. And that's what prophets do. They, they see what cannot yet be seen. Of course, that's what John the Baptist did with Jesus. Jesus comes to be baptized by his cousin. And John the Baptist sees Jesus and says, this is not the carpenter from Nazareth, which is what everyone else thought. He says, this is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. He could see what no one else could yet see. And that's what prophets do. They prepare the way for God's purposes to be unveiled. He begins to raise up prophetic voices. That's what John the Baptist does. And that's what prophets do. It's so important to remember that prophecy is not just foretelling the future, but it's co-creating the future with God. It's really quiet in here. Let me just say that again. Prophecy is not just foretelling the future, it's co-creating the future with God. Which means that when we prophesy, we plant a seed of future reality now. See, wishful thinking is saying, I will have an apple tree in my garden. That's wishful thinking. Prophecy is taking an apple seed and planting it in the garden and say, I will have an apple tree in my garden. That's what the prophetic is. It's planting a future seed of a future reality now. It causes the kingdom to break from the future into the present. That's what John the Baptist is doing. He's saying, here's the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. He was prophesying a future reality. Everyone else could just see the carpenter from Nazareth, but John could see what no one else could see. This is the Lamb of God. And so God starts to raise up prophets who speak the future into being. And I know for Carol and I, I was just remembering this story the other day. When we were courting, we were starting to have all those conversations you have when you're courting about what you like and what you hope for and what you want your life to be like. And we began to have a conversation about family and children. And so I asked, I said, Carol, you know, do, you want, do you want children? You know, do, you know what, what do you think, a family? And she's like, I, I actually, I've never wanted my own children. I, I'd, I'd like to adopt, I'd like the blessing of a family, but I don't actually want to have my own children. It actually is something I feel really fearful about, so I'm not sure that's what I want. So I remember listening to that and thinking, Lord Jesus, please would you break in? Because I definitely wanted a family. And you know, you were asking those questions of, is this the right woman for me? Are we meant to be together? You know, all that kind of stuff. I'm asking the big questions. And so I just, I'm just praying privately following that conversation. And then we go to a meeting a little bit like this, where a lady called Sharon comes and begins to prophesy over Carol. Now, Carol had only told four other people in her life that she didn't want children. And so Sharon, who's never met us before, she begins to prophesy over Carol and she says, I can see in your heart where you said you don't want children, but you long for the blessings of family. God's going to come to that place in your heart and he's going to make it brand new. I mean, it was just, it was stunning. I mean, it was like wild. My, my jaw hit the floor. Fast forward a few weeks, months later, Carol has a dream one night and in this dream, she dreams that she's pregnant. And she had all the feelings that you get when you're pregnant. And in this dream, it lasted a long time, so much detail in it. And uh, God said to her, you're going to have a child and this child will delight your heart. And in this dream, she gave birth to a child and she said, when I saw this child in my dream, I just loved this child with all my heart. And she said, at that moment in the dream, all her maternal instincts and desire for family just started to come out of her heart. 
and she woke up completely changed. I mean completely changed. She ran to my house. Then I was still a student in Newcastle. She ran to my house and she said, Phil, God's met me in a dream. I want to start a family. I was like, you're going to have to wait till we marries, and then we can start a family. And so I remember from day one of being married, she was just the broodiest person I think I've ever met on planet Earth. She's like, can we, can we have kids yet? Can we have kids yet? You know, bear in mind, I got married when I was 21. And so we had kids very, very soon afterwards. But this is what the prophetic does. It plants a seed of future reality into our hearts so that it can come about. And so in times of turbulence and convulsion, God starts to raise up his prophetic voice. Now, you may be sitting here thinking, well, what's this got to do with me? I'm not a prophet. It's got everything to do with you. Because this is not just about individuals. This is about a prophetic company of people, a prophetic people. Remember what Jesus said, you are a city set on a hill. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Shine your light before men that they might praise your Father in heaven. Every single one of us is a prophet in this room because we are his prophetic people. So this involves all of us. And I don't know if you realise this, but every single private and public decision you make is prophesying God's perspective to either the hidden realities or the seen realities. Remember what Jesus said? When you pray in secret, your fathers will see and he will reward you. That means that your private praying is like a prophecy into the spiritual realms that the father sees and he will reward that private decision. When you give, give in private. Your father, when he sees what's done in secret, will reward you. When you fast, do it in secret. Your father sees. Every decision you and I make is a prophetic declaration of who God is. My private decisions about how I use my money to honour God is like a prophecy every time I choose to give it away rather than keep it and hoard it. Your sexual ethics are a prophetic word to the world around you. And I want to ask you, are your sexual ethics a mirror or a mouthpiece? Because you're not called to be a mirror to culture. You're called to be a mouthpiece to culture. You're called to be people who declare God's reality from his perspective. Not just with your lips, but with the way that you live. You know, I remember Carol and I offended so many Christians when we were going out. Because we made the decision that we didn't want to snog until our wedding day. Oh God, there was a little gasp there. There was a little, what? What? It's so radical, Phil. There was a gasp. That's, that's so interesting. We offended so many Christians by making that stand. Because it's so interesting. So often when people are going out, their question is, as a Christian, how far can I go? My friends, that's the wrong question. The question is, how can I most honor God? That's the right question. That's the right question. And so for us, the decision we made was, well, I don't want to see how close to the edge of the cliff I can get. Because I tell you, people who have, who have that perspective usually fall off the cliff. That is the sad reality. People who ask that question fall off the edge of the cliff and they have regrets about how they conduct themselves. But if you say, how can I honour God and keep my integrity and prophesy around me a reality that's different than the culture, then suddenly you become a mouthpiece and not a mirror. So how are you doing that? How are you doing that with your money, with your sexual ethics, with your relationships, with your speech, with these things? Because these are the things God gives us to plant a seed of future reality into the here and now. 
How do you change the world in a time of moral convulsion? We become God's prophetic people. God's prophetic people. You know, at the start of the year, the Lord said to me, Phil, the church is in great danger of domesticating the prophets. And this is what the church tends to do as it becomes more religious and more institutionalized. We tend to domesticate prophetic people so they only tell us what we want to hear. But how many of you know it's a scary place when the prophets only tell us what we want to hear? The prophets are here to disrupt the future and get us into God's future. Just this quick, quick picture here. Here's the difference. They're both birds. Think of these as prophets. (laughs) They're both birds. They're both prophets. But how many of you know there's two different realities going on in those pictures? One domesticated, one mighty. I love what Winston Churchill said. He said, when the eagles are silent, the parrots start to jabber. Or this is my paraphrase. When the eagles stop talking, the parrots start squawking. We are not designed to be a parrot church. Parrots repeat what's in culture back to it. But we're called to be an eagle. We're called to be different. And then secondly and lastly, in times of moral convulsion, God chooses unlikely people who reflect his heart. (laughs) I love this. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. This is probably the guy that you don't want to come to your small group. This is not the guy that you would choose to lead a new moral revolution. You would choose the guy who is well-educated, well-connected, well, you know, an influencer in society, lots of followers, lots of likes, lots of ability to, to communicate to a broad range of people. And yet God says, I'm choosing the camel hair wearing locust eating guy. That's who I want. This is what God does. In the kind of time that we're in, he begins to raise unlikely leaders from unlikely places. He chooses people who don't think that they're qualified. I don't know for you, about you, but I think that's jolly good news. Because <laughs> I often feel unqualified for God to use me. But God chooses people like that. He chooses John the Baptist. Let's look at the next, next picture. I love the story of William Seymour. William Seymour was used by God right at the start of the Pentecostal movement in the 1900s. An amazing man of God. William Seymour, in many ways, was an unlikely leader. He grew up in an uneducated home. His family was dirt poor. Um, He was blind in one eye because he lost it from polio. He was uh, an African-American living in a highly, highly segregated America. And he was a porter and a truck driver in Memphis. That's what he did. He drove a truck for a living. And one day, someone saw that there was a call of leadership on his life and said, you need to go to Bible school. So Seymour went to a Bible school in Texas, but because of racism in the nation, he wasn't allowed to sit in with everyone else. He had to sit outside and listen to the Bible teaching. He then moved to Azusa Street in Los Angeles, and William Seymour is the guy that God picks out and chooses for a mighty revival to break out in Los Angeles. Azusa Street is known as just a mighty place of the outpouring of God. At times it was said that the cloud of God's God's glory would literally fill the room and it would be so thick that the children could play hide and seek in the glory cloud. Not wild. 
There was one story of a guy who lost his arm in a machinery accident but received a new one instantaneously in the presence of God in William Seymour's meetings. And yet William Seymour would often put a box over his head during the meetings and he would keep his head covered until he felt God tell him to speak. But let me tell you, these are exactly the sorts of people that God chooses because God doesn't look at outward appearance. He looks at the heart. He looks at the heart. He chooses truck drivers from Memphis with one eye who weren't part of the boys club, who were outside of the, 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 the one that everyone else would choose. He chooses people like that. Everything that you think disqualifies you from being used by God are the very thing that God's thinking, brilliant, I can use you. The, the very weaknesses you see in yourself are the things that God's looking at thinking, that's material I can work with. He's not so good at using proud people. He tends to pass us by when we're proud. But when we're weak, he's like, he's rubbing his hands. He's like, I can use you. I can use you. We finish with this, this quote from Rick Warren, which I love in his Purpose Driven Life book. He says this, God wants to use you to make a difference in his world. He wants to work through you. What matters is not the duration of your life, but the donation of it. If you're not involved in any service or ministry, what excuse have you been using? Abraham was old, Jacob was insecure, Leah was unattractive, Joseph was abused, Moses stuttered, Gideon was poor, Samson was codependent, Rahab was immoral, David had an affair and all kinds of family problems, Elijah was suicidal, Jeremiah was depressed, Jonah was reluctant, Naomi was a widow, John the Baptist was eccentric to say the least, Peter was impulsive and hot-tempered, Martha worried a lot, the Samaritan woman had several failed marriages, Zacchaeus was unpopular, Thomas had doubts, Paul had poor health and Timothy was timid. That is quite a variety of misfits but God used each of them in his service and he will use you too if you stop making excuses God is not looking for perfect people he's looking for willing people and in times of moral convulsion God's eyes are ranging around the earth to look for men and women not who are perfect but who are willing I pray that you find some willing people in this room I pray you find some people who are available to him in the day of his power. I pray you find some William Seymours in this room. You discount yourself. You think you're not part of the club. You think you don't have what it takes. But from God's perspective, he's like, I'm going to have you. And I'm going to have you. And you, and you, and you. This is what God does in times of moral convulsion. Why don't we stand? I want us to take a moment just to pray. Our time has gone. But just where you are, why don't you just lift your hands to the Lord. I want to pray for you as we come in for a landing. If you are a weak person who is available to be used by God, why don't you just lift your hands where you are? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God, you chose the foolish things to shame the wise. God, you came for people like us. And Lord, we thank you that in a time of moral crisis, we can say confidently, our God has a plan and he is gonna, he's gonna work it out through his people. And so Lord, I wanna pray that you would make us not a parrot church, but an eagle church. God, make us not a mirror of culture, make us a mouthpiece to culture. God, make us a people that don't just regurgitate what's all around us, 
but that we are a genuine voice of your future reality. Jesus, raise up your people, I pray, in this season. Make us a prophetic church, a city set on a hill. Make us the salt of the earth. And God, here we are, Lord. We are weak people. We're so aware of our failings and our shortcomings. And yet, Lord, we say, here I am. Here I am. Send me. Why don't you just say that to the Lord where you are? Say, here I am. Send me. Send me. Here I am, Lord. Send me tomorrow morning when I go to work. Lord, send me. Send me with your message. Send me with your heart. Just say, even today, make private decisions about your private priorities and say, Lord, I want to prophesy with my private decisions who God really is. God, come and do a work in us, I pray. Lord, I pray it for our 9.30 congregation, for our 10.30 congregation, for our 11.30, for everyone that's online right now. I pray for everyone within the sound of my voice. Holy Spirit, rest on us for such a time as this. God, visit the nation. Visit the nations of the earth. Unfold your plan in a time of crisis. Let the kingdom of God break out to the left and the right, to the front and the centre. Jesus, come. Jesus, come and be glorified. We ask in your mighty name. And everybody said, Amen.